Well, former University of Florida quarterback Tim Tebow, he's a follower of Jesus. He's very outspoken about his faith. And throughout his collegiate career, um, you know, he would put on that eye black that athletes wear. I, I think it's supposed to, like, diminish glare from the lights. Um, and during kind of those black stripes under his eyes, he would, he would write during college uh, Bible verses. And during his team's 2008 season, it was always the same verse. The following season, 2009, I think he changed it week by week. But 2008, it was always the same verse. It was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, or some say through Christ who gives me strength. Now, I like Tebow, aside from that one playoff game that they beat the Steelers, but that aside, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Tebow. I think he has represented the faith well. Um, but the modern use of this verse, Philippians 4.13, is one of my pet peeves. Right? Like, this is one of the most misquoted passages in the scriptures. So if you know you're watching, you're in 2008, you're tuning into some Florida football, and they won the national championship that year, um, you know, you might think, you know, if you looked up the verse, Philippians 4.13, that he had on his eye black, you might think, you know, that Tim Tebow is able to do all things, in this case, play football really well, because God gives him strength. People have used this verse as kind of like a life verse to you know, use it as inspiration to try to summit a mountain, to run a marathon, close a sales call, anything that provides a challenge. It's been used to give confidence that in God, in Christ, they will overcome whatever stands in front of them. Now, I, I will admit it is entirely possible that these accomplishments were only achievable because of the strength or the grace of the Lord. I mean, surely God blessed Tim Tebow to play football. He is a talented athlete. I have not been blessed to play football in that way. But even if that is the case, that's not what this Philippians 4.13 passage means. And so if you'd open your Bibles, Bible apps, however you want to follow along, we're going to look at Philippians 4 and examine the broader context of this passage together to understand kind of what Paul is saying when he makes this inspirational claim. Now, this will be the final section of Philippians, and what we're going to see in this main theme, or see in this passage, the main theme is that Paul is thanking the Philippians for their monetary support of him, right, their financial gift to him. So hopefully you've had a chance to find the passage. So if you'd follow along as I read Philippians 4, 10 to 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians know, you yourselves know, that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, 
No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And he closes out the letter, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. As I said a minute ago, a moment ago, it's evident from reading this passage that the primary theme, what Paul is expressing here, is his gratitude for the monetary gift that Epaphroditus has brought to him while he's under house arrest in Rome. And we see, just kind of give some linguistic and structural um, background, Um, you know, Paul begins or ends the letter the same way that he began it. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 23 that I just read parallel a lot of the themes that we saw at the very beginning. I, I mean, I don't know if you can remember two months ago. I don't know if I can remember two months ago, but the first 11 verses of Philippians You know, and so let's start with Paul's final greeting. Verse 21, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now, if you follow along in the NIV, they translate this as greet all God's people. But the ESV, what I like about the ESV in this place is that it rightly focuses on the singular grammar, right? The words there for saints are are not plural. It's actually the singular. It's greet every saint, And I think that's important because it's not just, hey, greet everyone who's here, but there's kind of an intimacy, a focus on each one of the saints that Paul is focusing. Paul dealt with at the beginning kind of that equality of his audience. He's not elevating any officer of the church, but focuses on each individual's worth before God as members of the congregation. And just like at the beginning, right, he offers a word of grace to them in the, in the name of Jesus Christ. So that kind of very beginning and the very end parallel. And then we can move up verses 3 through 11 and 10 through 20. Right, 10 through 20 is kind of the meat of this section that we're going to look at. And if you, I mean, you don't have to, but if you want to turn back a page and look at 3 through 11 in chapter 1, you can. See, there's a note of joy. Chapter 1, verse 4. We've talked about joy. This, this language of joy appears 14 different times in this letter chapter 1, verse 4, but also chapter 4, verse 10. Paul mentions the Philippians' concern for his needs in chapter 1, verse, verses 5 and 7. And we see that picked up again here in our passage, chapter 4, verses 10, 14, and 18. He highlights the importance of the Philippians' progress in the faith, chapter 1, verses 6, and then 9 through 11, paralleled in chapter 4, verse 17. Lastly, there's a call to the glory of God, 111 and 420. Right? As, as Paul is, I think what's going on here, it's kind of like bookends to his letters. Paul is wrapping up his letter. He's using yet another opportunity to touch on these themes that have permeated the whole of the letter. 
He kind of, you know, it's like when you were in, in uh, I don't know, probably middle school, maybe high school, when they like told you how to write essays, right? Introduction, body, conclusion. Tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you just said. So you've got some of that in it. But when we look at the, the actual content here, verses 10 through 20, there is a particular structure in these 11 verses as well. Paul's kind of saying, thank you, but no thank you. He's expressing gratitude for their monetary gift, and he does so three different times, verses 10, 14, and 18. But then in between, he kind of makes some, some comments. That he's kind of sidestepping that gratitude, distancing himself from the gift. It, it almost, you know, reads just a little bit awkward. You know, he's like, thank you so much for the gift, verse 10, but you know, I didn't really need it, verses 11 through 13. But thanks again, verse 14, but I, I didn't ask for it, verse 17. But thanks anyway, verse 18. You kind of see that. Thanks, no thanks, thanks, no thanks. And, and Paul is indeed, what we need to see here is Paul is indeed genuine in his gratitude, but there's some stuff historically going on that kind of gives this why he's kind of playing around at fencing his, his uh, way to say thank you, why he's taking this posture. Paul was dealing with money in a, a hesitant way because there were a lot of examples in his day and age where it was common for charlatan philosophers to stand at street corners and manipulate people for money. We don't know anything like that today, right? Lucian was a second century writer, and he had this to say about these hucksters. He said, quote, they, they collect tribute going from house to house, or as they themselves express it, they shear the sheep, and they expect many to give either out of respect for their cloth or for fear of their abusive language. So according to Lucian, there were philosophers who would roam the streets, preying on people, trying to con them out of their money in order to pad their pockets. Right? That image, I think, of that, that you know, in their own words, they saw themselves as shearing the sheep. It's a graphic example of the way they would fleece the, the people, the public. And so Paul, having this as a backdrop, knowing there's a lot of people out there, you know, there's a lot of individuals, people of influence, using their, their power and influence to manipulate others to give. And Paul's very sensitive to this reality. And so he often wrote in a way to ensure that, like, I'm not like them. Yes, I might be talking about money, but please don't group me like those hucksters. I mean, I think you can point out numerous places in the New Testament where Paul encourages churches to financially support those who spiritually shepherd their congregations. A great example is 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18. Paul writes this. He says, let the elders who rule be well considered worthy of double honor, kind of an idiom for financial support, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And again, this, would have, this was about Timothy, but this was also about Paul. Verse 18, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, what I like about this one, as P Paul is appealing to kind of, or as he's, he's expressing uh, support for financial support of, of uh, the, the pastors, he's appealing back to the scriptures, he says. And he's quoting scriptures from two different places. The first don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain is an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy 25.4. You know, it's, it's God giving this command, you know, saying, hey, 
while the ox is out there, don't muzzle it, like let it pick up the scraps as it's doing its work for you, right? Don't exploit it. But then he, he adds, the worker is worthy of his wages, which is actually a quote from Jesus, Luke 10, verse 7. And there's, maybe we'll unpack this in small group, that there's kind of the fact that Scripture, a quote of Jesus, is called Scripture, the word graphe uh, in, in Greek kind of draws the New Testament in the same authoritative matrix as the Old Testament. But again, I'm, I digress. But Paul here is making the claim, right? It's not wrong to seek out financial compensation. It would not have been wrong for him to do so. But time and time again, and there's a number of places you can go to for this, but time and time again, he's showcasing that his normal routine is to refuse such support so that there wasn't even a hint of scandal, that he could not be accused of favoritism or being motivated by the gifts that he received from his congregation. Time and time again, Paul is distancing himself from the gifts. So what we see is in verse 10, Paul says, thank you, but then backpedals a bit in verses 11 through 10. He expresses that, and there's some really good stuff for us in here, he expresses that his joy, right, that theme that we've seen time and time again, we've talked about it, joy is not the same as happiness, it doesn't necessarily mean like everything's going hunky-dory, therefore I'm joyful, that there are tough situations where we can still have joy in the Lord. But he's saying his joy is not dependent on the alleviation of his physical discomfort. Even though he is in prison, he is not in need, is what he's saying. And in the verses, he shows his experience living between these two extremes. He knows what it is to have plenty, but he also knows what it means to be hungry, to have your stomach rumbling when you go to sleep at night. He knows what it is to have abundance, but he also knows what it is to be broke. But in whatever situation he finds himself in, he is content. I think that's verse 11, that word content. And that word for content, it's a word that was often used in his time by Stoic philosophers to describe their self-sufficiency. But that's not what's going on with Paul. he's, He's not having an attitude of self-reliance, but instead his sufficiency, he says, is in the Lord. And that's where we get to that verse 413 that is my pet peeve. Paul can do all things. What's implied by the context is all these things through Christ who gives him strength. The meaning of this verse is not that God gives us the strength to do anything that we set our minds to, What's in view is having the strength to live in all of these different financial situations. In plenty, God was Paul's source of strength and focus. In poverty, it was Jesus who sustained him. And so the take-home for us is regardless of where we find ourselves, like Paul, He can experience joy. We can experience joy because He was sustained for, or sustained by, and provided for by the Lord. So Paul just said, thank you, but hey, I didn't really need it. And so he wants to make sure that his comments are not seen as ingratitude, like, thanks for this gift, but, you know, whatever. So he expresses another expression of thankfulness. Verses 14 to 16. 
he says that it was kind of the Philippians to share in his troubles. Again, he's harking back to those opening verses. Right, the, in chapter 1, verse 17, there's that line where he talks about how there are people trying to wound him. Right? They're preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition while he's in prison, trying to like, kind of stick it to him. And the word, the ESV translated is as they tried to afflict him. But that is the exact same word that is used here of trouble in chapter 4. And so what Paul is doing is he's contrasting these two groups, right? Those folks that I told you about at the beginning of my letter, they're trying to cause me trouble. They're trying to do me harm. But I am grateful that you have shared in my trouble, that you've come alongside of me by providing this monetary gift. But again, to not get too focused on the gift, Paul returns to distancing himself from it in verse 17. And it's not the gift that he's seeking, but he's focused on the way that this gift has spiritually developed the Philippian church. I mean, the image here is almost like, you know, in our modern world of compound interest. It's kind of like pouring on itself. Paul's focused more on their spiritual maturity that resulted from the gift than the gift itself. And then we saw Paul bounce back to gratitude again, verse 18, issuing a verbal receipt. He's in essence saying that he's received full payment, right? Epaphroditus was good on his, his word, on that delivery. He's received full payment for goods delivered and services rendered. But before we get to application, I want to focus on something he says in verse 19. He says that God will supply every need of the Philippian church. Now, if you read that, it begs the question, what needs our God, is it that God is meeting? Right? Are these financial me- needs? Are these spiritual needs? What's going on in this passage? And, you know, sometimes, like, we can take a superficial, straight reading of the text, but I think a lot of times we kind of add our own, it's what's called eisegesis. We kind of, like, read our own circumstances or what we want to be true into ambiguity in the text. And so this type of passage Uh, This is the type of passage that many in the prosperity gospel, you might have heard it called health and wealth, right? Jesus wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. And if you're not, that means you're just not praying hard enough, not living in God's will. But the idea is it's like if-then statements. They're trying to create a formula. If you give, God will pay it back to you in X, Y, or Z. You might have heard it said language of like, sow in this ministry and you reap a blessing of God. The truth is, there are a lot of hucksters out there in the church, a lot of folks who prey on people to try to get them to give, to fleece them, if you will, to keep that um, theme from Lucian going. You know, last week I was, you know, cycling through my Instagram reels, and I saw one come up. Um, I think it's, I think the, the account is called The Holy Nope, and it's this guy who's like grabbing his Bible and he walks out the door, and then they play a clip from some kind of outlandish church service, and he's just like, it's, it's hit, to then cl- fast back to him, uh, 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 like closing the door, being like, nope, like not, not going to go there. But anyway, what, what the, the, the clip was, was a televangelist, I didn't recognize him, in the midst of some sort of telethon. And as he spoke to the viewer, whoever was watching this telethon, he was kind of uh, uh, trying to connect with the viewer and describing their burdensome credit card debt, right? You know, you've got this credit card debt, you don't know how to overcome it. His challenge to them was, he said, so in this ministry, 
I challenge you to put $1,000 on this credit card and then sit back and watch God just wipe that debt away. And I was just like flabbergasted. Like this is precisely that type of predatory and charlatan behavior that Paul was so nervous about when he was corresponding with the Philippians. I don't think this promise here that Paul gives is that, that because the Philippians gave financially that they would, you know, the gates of he- heaven would be open and they would, ha- you know, be, be rolling in the dough. Given what we've seen in the entirety of this letter, the issue that Paul is most concerned about is not their finances, it's not their comfort, it's their joy of service to God and one another, especially in difficult circumstances. We've seen how persecution, something that we don't know a whole lot about, but persecution was a large backdrop of much of this letter. But in spite of those trials, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to hold fast to Christ and that God is going to give them what they need to persevere through all of it. I think that's what's going on here when it says that God is going to meet your every need. He's going to help you maintain steadfast faith in a lot of really difficult and crappy situations. Now, as we, I, I want to take some time and try to think about this in terms of, like, our lives. What can we learn from this? How do we take a first-century text, fast-forward nearly 2,000 years, and kind of put in our lives? And so I have a few things I want to offer. The first is the place of gratitude. I know it's a bit awkward, right? There's this back and forth with Paul, you know, Thanksgiving, but not. But looking at the heart of the letter, it's, it's evident that Paul loved the Philippians. He appreciated the Philippians. They loved him well as well. And in this affection, they had given sacrificially to him. And he, he wanted to make sure that they knew his heartfelt acknowledgement of that partnership in the gospel. You know, before being here, I worked with an organization called the CCO, and we were responsible for doing a lot of fundraising. And one of the slogans they would say, and it stuck with me, is gratitude unexpressed is ingratitude. Gratitude unexpressed is ingratitude. We might be very thankful for someone in our lives or something that they did for us, but most people aren't mind readers. They don't know what's going on in our head. So unless we find some way to communicate that gratitude, unless we communicate to them verbally, orally, uh, I guess that's the same thing, you know, writing it down in a note, if, if we don't communicate our feelings of thanks, it remains unknown to the giver. Here we can model Paul. We can communicate our gratitude when we experience it. And I'll leave it as a reflection question as well, but, you know, I want to invite you to take some time and think about someone that you're thankful for or something that someone did that you're thankful for and, like, make a plan to tell them. Don't leave that gratitude unexpressed. The the passage also reveals uh, something about our practice of giving. And and as I alluded to earlier in the service, you know, we're going to revisit some of these ideas in the the next few weeks Um, But Paul equates their gift to him with an acceptable and pleasing offering to God. This is Old Testament language of sacrifice. 
So, basically, Paul is saying that when you are giving financially to, to him or to the church or to missions, whatever it might be, we give to what I call, um, quote-unquote, kingdom work. Right? So, for me, kingdom work is, is work that God is doing, God's people are doing to expand His kingdom. So, for me, like, kingdom work would be giving to, like, Compassion International, not necessarily the same thing as giving to, like, United Way. I'm sure they're doing great stuff, but that's not what I would necessarily group under kingdom work. Anyway, we'll unpack some of that stuff later. So, when we're giving it to them, giving to kingdom work, it means that we're not necessarily giving to Compassion International, or we're not giving to support the Holy Post, or to our our local church congregations. Really, what we're giving to is we're giving first to God, right? We're giving first to God, and then God redirects those gifts to whatever kingdom-minded nonprofit that we uh, have in mind. So you're not, even when you put money in the offering plate, your primary giving is not to this space, not to this community of believers. Primarily, you're giving to God, and then it comes to, to us. But beyond just that, what we saw Paul had in mind primarily was not the value of the gift itself, but the increasing spiritual capital that it brought the Philippians, that giving in and of itself is a spiritual discipline, something that we are invited to participate in. And in doing so, it yields spiritual development, spiritual fruit in our lives. Yes, when we give to Christian charities, the gospel is proclaimed, the needs of the poor are met, but we also experience maturity and growth as well. Now, again, there's a lot more we could go into, but you know, sometime. I haven't picked which Sunday yet, but one of these Sundays, maybe I won't tell you, because, you know, if I tell you, hey, I'm going to speak on money this week, no one's going to show up that week. Um, but one of these weeks in, in November, we'll, we'll be talking about it in the next month. All right, the, the last piece of application that I want to focus on um, gets to that pet peeve verse of mine at the beginning, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Paul's, I, I think a lot of this uh, uh, deals with Paul's claims of contentment in all circumstances. Right? He can be content because of the power, the presence, the provision of the Lord. That, I think, is the true meaning of Philippians 4.13. Not that I can complete a marathon with God's help. Again, I, I would need God's help to complete a marathon. Uh, you know, we had a book that we read at seminary called The Right Doctrine from the Wrong Text, right? God is supporting us in those things, but that's not what Philippians 4.13 says, right? Philippians 4.13 is like, all right, I can get promoted in my company because of God, but instead, in all circumstances, whether in abundance or poverty, I can be content with the provision and presence of the Lord. This is completely counter to the wiring of our modern capitalist society. We are trained to be discontent in all circumstances of life. Our financial system is based upon the dissatisfaction with the life we currently find ourselves in. You know, uh, the 2020 film Wonder Woman 1984, Pedro Pascal plays supervillain Maxwell Lord. He's this business mogul, and he, like, steals a magic stone to save his, his oil company. It's not a very good movie. Uh, if anyone saves it, it's Pedro Pascal. 
But throughout the movie, you see kind of this slogan that he's known for in the movie. And he spouts off. He says, life is good, but it can be better. Life is good, but it can be better. What a summary of the culture that we live in, in the 20th and 21st century. Instead of being content with a good life, we strive and we strive for a better life. And usually that life is defined by financial affluence because, you know, money makes the world go round. Paul's attitude flies in the face of the sentiment. Instead of just toiling for just a little more, we're invited to see the blessings that God has given us right here and right now. Right? Instead of trying to keep up with the Joneses or the Kardashians, guess what? You're not going to be able to. Hopefully that's not a spoiler for you. Instead, we're encouraged to cease our strivings and rest in the provision of the Lord. But here's the thing. That's not all that Philippians 4.13 says. Right? It says, I can do all these things through Christ who gives me strength. Usually when we think about that, if we're thinking about it in financial situations, we think about times when, our, when we lack, when we're in poverty, in hunger. Yes, Jesus sustains us in times where we are struggling financially. But I, I'm going to tell you that I think that God's presence, God's strength is uh, just as important in times of plenty and abundance. Maybe if it may even be needed more in those times of affluence than in times of poverty. Because when we find ourselves in affluence, when all our needs have been met and we're just chasing after those wants, it's easy to forget about God's grace. It's easy to start looking inward and relying on ourselves. Start to point to, you know, our business acumen or our responsible decision-making that got us to this point. I tell you, I love the wisdom of the Scriptures. I mean, it is right, uh, Hebrews, that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, cutting through, right, down to the marrow. Because check out this quote from about 3,000 years ago that speaks right into the heart of our day and age. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. The author says, give me neither poverty nor riches. It's not how I'd normally pray. Sure, give me, don't give me poverty, but hey, God, bless me financially. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We need God in all circumstances. In poverty, we need His provision so that we're not prone to steal, We're not prone to act in a way that profanes God's name, but we also need God in times of abundance. And if you are living in 21st century modern America, I'm going to argue that that's the one that we need to be more focused on. That we don't rest too much on our own competency and self-reliance. That we no longer find ourselves needing God. Give me the food that is needful for today, right? What does the Lord's Prayer say? Give us today our daily bread. Some translations say tomorrow's bread today. So 
we're planning in advance a little bit, but it's not like, hey, God, give me a nest egg so that I've got bread for the next 30 years. Because if I've got bread for the next 30 years, why do I need to pray for bread? What sense does the Lord's Prayer make anymore? So, I'm rambling a little bit. Remember, it's through the strength of the Lord that we can do these things. So, this morning, we've been closing out our our study of the letter to the Philippians. Um, We've seen themes of of joy. Um, Sorry, don't multitask. We've seen themes of joy. We've seen compassion, humility, all stemming from our spiritual maturity in the Lord. There's that great um, section at the beginning of of chapter 2 that uses Jesus as the example. What does it mean for us to model that humility, sacrificial love? But hear what we saw this morning. May we, as we close this out, be a people who are content, content with what the Lord has provided so that we can be unleashed to be generous with our resources towards others. If I'm content with what I have, it's much easier for me to open my hands. As Paul finishes his letter, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. So I, I want to give you a few questions to reflect on these, the, these themes. So the first is, is that gratitude. So as I kind of promised, so take some time, think of someone that you're grateful for, and make a plan to tell them this week. I know this is something that I'm, I know I'm not always great at. Some of you are really great at it, you know, you, you share it. Um, I keep, Carol sends me cards from time to time saying, hey, Chris, you know, thanks for, thanks for letting me do this painting. And that, it means a lot to me, you know. It's actually, I kept that card. It's now my bookmark for the book that I'm reading right now. Um, and so, you know, find, there's, I'm sure there's someone in your life that you're like, I'm really grateful that they're there. Tell them, find them, let them know, because otherwise they're just guessing and, you know, they might be guessing wrong. Second is this, contentment. Are you content with what the Lord has given you? Why or why not? I really like the way um, Jen Hatmaker talked about it. She has a book called Seven. I never read it, but my wife was real into it. Um, and, and, you know, there's this theme of enough. Are, like, do you feel like you have enough? It's kind of similar language of contentment. And, and she argued that we, the only reason that we would feel like we have enough is because we feel that we are enough and how, how much those two themes um, relate to one another. So often our striving after more, more, more actually is us trying to mask the insecurity that we have that without that thing, whatever it is, I'm not enough. But ultimately, of course, we can be our, our enoughness. We are enough because Jesus is enough. So are you content? Why or why not? I think that's a big one to unpack. And then this one's kind of more of a silly one. You know, if, if you have a, like, do you have a, I shared my pet peeve verse. I don't know if you all have pet peeve verses, ones that you're like, oh man, when people use this verse, they use it wrong all the time. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear them because, I don't know, maybe we can, that can be an, an FAQ Sunday, uh, going into all these, these verses. Uh, Jeremiah, I think it's 29, right? I know the plans I have for you. I apologize if any of you have that, like, cross-stitched on your wall. Um, I don't mean to, like, destroy it, but it's just that we need to understand the reality of a lot of times we over-sentimentalize passages, and they're good. It's good news for us, but we need to keep in mind some of the the difficulty, the circumstances that come with them. Anyway, uh, let's, let's pray at that. Uh, um, let's pray and we'll do, yeah, we'll do one more song. We got some time. Um, I've got a song back there that I thought we can sing together. So pray with me. 
Lord, as we consider gratitude, um, far be it from us to think about all the things that we're thankful for and all the people that we're thankful for if we don't first primarily think of gratitude towards you. Lord, that you have given us so much. You have created a world that is good. You have uh, uh, find ways to, to tantalize our taste buds with good food. You have uh, just given us awestruck visions of, of, of uh, beautiful contrasts, vibrant colors. Lord, if that were all, it would be enough, but you have come to earth as we saw in, earlier in Philippians. You came and joined us with skin on, Jesus, and you humbled yourself to death and death on a cross so that we could be reconciled to you, God. And so may that be the start of our praise, the start of our gratitude. And from that, Lord, may we be thankful for everything that we have that you've given us. Lord, teach us the secret to contentment, that we would not be too haughty, that our eyes would not be too much ahead comparing ourselves to the person who has more on the block and that that's what we are striving for, but instead that we would be generous in giving to others and through that that you develop in us a spiritual maturity, a spiritual, pa spiritual passion of trust in you. Lord, because you provide for our needs and we can do these things through Jesus who gives us strength. In that strength we pray, amen.